the morning. Today's reading is from Acts 19, 8 through 20. Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Isn't she the cutest? <laughs> Is she blushing on the way back? I just want to... Thank you so much, Nancy. That song uh, at the end, Jesus, thank you, is just, it grabs you. And uh, I don't know, the, the, the theological kind of pondering that that song produces and it's mind-blowing. And to sing in the chorus just amongst this beautiful melody of that the wrath of God was completely satisfied is, is amazing. You think about the implications that has, this is all free, by the way, none of this is in the message. The implications that that has for us and just mankind and society and that we walk around and we live carrying the weight of what we think is a wrathful God who just wants to squash us. We fail. We have that thought. We conduct that act and we think, that's it. I've lost my chance. The wrath of God was completely satisfied because he let his son, he sent his son to the cross to die for you and me. You know, a lot of times the world looks at the actions of God, the triune Godhead, the Father. Um, in our kind of limited understanding, I guess, in our vernacular is orchestrating the plan and the Son submitting to that plan and going to death on a cross. And they look at the cruelty of a Father who would do that. The beginning of that song said that you, uh, you the perfect Holy One, crushed your Son. I couldn't do that to my kids. I couldn't send them to pay for you. And yet God did. Is that cruel? But in what he did was he took all the anger and all the wrath that he would have on the entire population. He placed it on his son. And for that moment, Jesus felt that separation between he and the father. And cried out, why have you forsaken me? It's just amazing and yet we walk around in this heaviness that God just wants to judge us. He just wants to, his judgment was put on his son for you and for me. Doesn't mean he never wants to correct us. He's a good father. Of course, he's going to do that. But he doesn't live. He doesn't exist. He doesn't desire to squash us. He wants us to be blessed. 
and to be walking in his will. That's a lot of what we'll be talking about this morning, but I just, man, all those music will do this. It'll stir that up in us, won't it? Especially well-written music and beneficial and spiritual music. And I was told this morning of a, a ministry that we support or have had support in the past and personal connection within Kosovo where the Valentines, Tim and Karen, uh, had gone and been personal uh, ministry partners there in Kosovo to this church called the Boom Church. We've had groups go over and uh, participate in Kosovo and evangelism things. And after all of these years and thousands of dollars and all the different things, that ministry is still growing and moving forward. And next week uh, marks their first ever. Now think about this, a predominantly 90 something percent Muslim culture. And they're having their first ever public Christian concert. And they're opening the doors and having people come in. It's amazing. And so... Um, what I'd like to do before we get into what we're planning to talk about, um, just take some time and pray and thank the Lord for this milestone. Ask him to do some incredible things uh, in Kosovo and keep that in prayer, if you would, please, throughout the week. And it'll be this time. It'll, it'll When we get together next Sunday, it will already have come and gone. It'll be happening next Sunday morning. So we want to pray for incredible results and the impact they continue to have there. So, Lord, I want to thank you, Father, for this great news. And Lord, I know that there's so much more at stake in an event like this than we can comprehend and appreciate here in our country. So Lord, we trust you to cover the details. We trust you to be present and stirring in the lives of those that are organizing and orchestrating this event. Lord, we pray for powerful impact that music can bring, the way it can unite people and also the way it can convict of sin and encourage, Lord, of grace. So I just pray, Lord, that you would do all those things. In the midst of the Boom Church in Kosovo, Lord, thank you for the faithful ministry that's been conducted throughout the years and the impact that you're making, not just in the community, but in government levels and all the different ways that your name is being proclaimed and your glory is being held higher than any other threats or any other tactics that would move uh, at the hand of the enemy. So thank, thank you, Lord, for all that you do. Pray that we continue to remember them in our prayers this week, Lord. Bring them to mind so that you would do more than we could ever ask or think in their midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How are you feeling this morning? <laughs> I came in a little slower, I'm going to admit. A little tighter, a little belt a little tighter this week. I discovered, though, that stress spelled backwards is desserts. So I handled my stress pretty well this week. Thoroughly, um, you know, I got received my therapy. But if you're wondering if you ate too much, let me just start off by just giving you a couple of public service announcements. If you're wondering if you ate too much, there's a few indicators that if you've heard these things this week or run across these things, there's a good chance you ate too much at Thanksgiving. If the doctor tells you that your weight would be perfect for a person 17 feet tall, or if you're responsible for a slight but measurable shift in the earth's axis, maybe paramedics had to bring in the jaws of life to pry you out of the easy boy. Maybe the potatoes that you use set off another famine in Ireland. Maybe every time they were pricking your finger uh, for cholesterol screening, they only got gravy instead. All right, I'll move on. I just had to make some reference to to Thanksgiving. It's like dealing with the leftovers, but there's something about Thanksgiving leftovers that makes it hard to quit cold turkey. So, all right. Okay, I promise I'm moving on. That was the last one in the notes. The rest is sermon. All right. It's a serious world, is it not? The news headlines, the like Pastor Tom had said, whatever you walked in these doors carrying from your personal life, it's heavy. It's really, really heavy. And so laugh once in a while, it's good, does good for the soul. It's a reminder that not everything in the future of the believer, the follower of Christ is as bleak as it seems to be in our world right now. But we are starting off light because we are going into a text, as you just heard Nancy read. Uh, that is covering some very dark realms, a realistic uh, viewpoint to the things that we engage in in battle every single day, whether we recognize it or not. And last week we examined the weight of living in the flesh. 
That's an actual weight that we carry of living for us and by our own designs and our own schemes and interests and things. Think almost like turkey leftovers, like the weight of carrying myself around. That's exactly what happens in the life of the person who is living by the flesh versus this freedom, this lightness that comes from walking in the spirit. Though it does come at great cost, it's not easy to attain, it's difficult to maintain, but it is much freer and lighter in terms of an existence. We took a close look, even though we are in Acts uh, 19 today, but we took a closer look at Galatians 5 last week. And just to remind us what we saw there uh, by the pen of Paul, he says, but we are to walk by the spirit and so that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And we said that actually a different way of putting a, a, a different viewpoint to put on that last phrase, keeping us from doing the things that we want to do is that many of us would echo, like Paul says, it's actually the spirit within me that wants me to do better things. And I want to do those things. I want to be able to say that that's my life. That's my passion. That's my pursuit. But this flesh thing, this sin thing keeps creeping up and rearing its ugly head in my life. And I find that it's causing a division so that I sometimes do or maybe even often do the things that I would rather not. That rather than just looking at it as though everything that's tempting or, or teasing or something that's wicked or if that's all we want to do, not necessarily, is it? We actually do want to be able to put our heads down on our pillows at night and have a clear conscience and live this freer existence. But so often our flesh gets in the way because there is a battle going on. So if we're to live in the freedom of the spirit towards God's purpose for our lives, we're going to be able to see what we do, what we engage in from this text here today as we come into Acts 19. First, I'd have us look at the fact that we are to hold high the word of God in our lives, that we give it greater value perhaps than we ever have. And secondly, that we would anticipate that God still does miracles. We're going to see that in this passage. But as we've been saying, to have that sobering reminder to see the spiritual battlefield everywhere we go. Don't lose sight of the fact that there's an attack and a front that's on. And then how do they react? We see from the text that they react with a radical repentance. Nothing half-hearted here. It's all or nothing. And that's our challenge today. So first and foremost, as we look at this idea of having an enduring dedication to the word of God, that that not only is our our thoughts and wishes, yeah, I love the Bible or the Bible, I should read it more, something like that. But I actually engage in an enduring way to hold it high. This is what we see Paul doing. And the end result of it, we see in verse 20. I want to see that there's like a, uh, a bookend on either side. At the beginning, we see that Paul's efforts in, I keep forgetting you're in reverse. At the beginning, start from that direction, go this way. That we, from the beginning, Paul puts the effort into the word. And verse 20 says the end result was that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All the stuff in the middle is important, but it is not to be our ultimate focus or our aim because the word of God was being endured uh, in terms of its effort. And then its result was that it was held high, that it was increased and it prevailed mightily. So the first clue for us, this key point that we could make is that when we value the work of the Lord over what our flesh craves or what our flesh desires or what our flesh gets itself into. Valuing the work of the Lord over that is our greatest weapon against the darkness. We're not hapless pawns in this. We're not um, instantly defeated the moment that we're tempted. We're not a, a surefire uh, failure just for the fact that this one thing that's always owned us is now coming back or any of those sorts of things. There is a strategy. There is a thing to do, and it is to value greater the word of God. So let's reread some of our texts this morning. We go back to 19 verse 8. And it says that he, that's Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Doesn't surprise us. 
but he's spending a three month period of time at least in just revisiting the issue, persuading, um, reasoning. That's all this kind of wrestling with that sort of thing. Verse nine. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. Reasoning daily instead, we could say, in the hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus, interesting, it might have been a nickname because it really does mean tyrannical. Can't imagine a parent naming their son. Now, we've seen those kids, right? So like if you could name them after two years old, there'd be a lot of Tyrannuses running around. But we don't start off with that in mind. So maybe this was, he was a professor, a teacher. Anybody here have a Tyrannus? You don't have to raise your hand because you're on camera. Don't get in trouble at school. Um, but there, it might have been, this guy's a tyrant. It might have been his nickname, Tyrannus. Anyway, Paul is reasoning daily in his hall or in his lecture hall. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All, of a, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Paul is doing something a little bit surprising for us, or maybe that would go against the grain of our guilty conscience, because oftentimes we think that we are to be faithful to the Lord. We just keep plugging away. There's no quitting you. You never stop that sort of thing, which is all true. But we sometimes forget that our audience is basically shutting it down and saying, I'm not interested, not hearing this anymore. Three months in reasoning, wrestling with coming at it from all different angles, as sharp as Paul was, you knew he wasn't just a one trick pony. He was trying everything in his tool pouch only to find that they were like, yeah, we've heard it all before. We don't want anything to do with this. And they started speaking harshly to him. They started accusing him of all kinds of falsehoods and different things. So he just kind of said, you know what? Not worth it anymore. In, in other words, we don't necessarily need to continually beat our heads when it has been be, become painfully obvious that there's no more audience, even for the grace of Jesus Christ. It might seem a little bit risky, and I'm, there's certainly a caution to it. But Jesus started off in Matthew 7 by reminding those who were dealing with detractors and those that were kind of active uh, antagonists to the gospel message. He says, don't give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That's exactly what's happening with Paul. They're starting to re, uh, retaliate and attack. However, here's the caution, is that we do need to build up some endurance, don't we? Especially in our culture, we're very thin-skinned. Anybody comes against us, we lick our wounds. It just hurts us and destroys us. They didn't like our thing on social media, something that just destroys us. We need to grow thicker skin and deal with some of that uh, resistance and deal with an, that in an enduring way. So we need Holy Spirit discernment to determine whether or not somebody is willing or ready or receptive to the truth that we are proclaiming. But there are times where they just make it so painfully obvious. Paul clarifies for us in Titus three, he says, as for a person who stirs up division, there's a qualification here after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So the active kind of slithering through or snaking the way through to, to cause opposition to the gospel, Paul's saying, you do not need to camp out on that. Move on. They're actively opposing. By ignoring the detractors after a time, by being willing to move on, Paul is able to build up the faithful. He's able to focus on those who are readily receiving. And so Paul's endurance or his resilience is exercised towards a crowd that's willing to come. Basically, every day, they're, they're, they didn't have siesta, but it was that idea that their afternoon hours of siesta, you know, 11 o'clock till like 4 or so, he would probably rent out this hall every single day. And that while the rest of culture is taking it easy, they put in an early morning work. They're going to come back to it later. While the rest of culture is moving on for two straight years, Paul says, I will meet with you every day here if you come, other than the Sabbath, I'm sure. Um, but if you come, I will meet with you every day. We will reason this out. Because Paul knew what we call discipleship is where we get our word disciple, uh, discipline. And so there's a discipline to having to engage every single day and wrestle these things out. And Paul says, if you're willing to be here, I will put in the work and I will do it with you. 
For two years, imagine this process. Paul is a, a tent maker uh, by trade. It was important, especially for the people of Ephesus and Corinth and others to see him earning a living because they probably thought, yeah, he's trying to make a few bucks off. We're going to hear that a little bit from some of the people in the text. There's always an angle. If there's power in Jesus name, we can score some some dough off of it. And so Paul says, I want to distance myself from any accusation. I'll earn my own way and I'll pay for the room. You guys come and I'll reason with you. It's incredible. There's an endurance here holding higher the word of God, knowing that that is the thing that's going to transform the lives of the people of Ephesus. It's kind of like I remember uh, President uh, Bush, uh, W, used to say, it's a fuzzy math. See that fuzzy math going on? God's kind of employing his own fuzzy math here. It's multiplication by division or addition by subtraction. He's saying, we'll walk away from all these other bigger crowds and where all the action is and the venom and the fighting back and forth. And I'll take this smaller group and I'll pour into them every day for the next two years. And then we see this incredible movement of the gospel come out of it. You see, because the impact of the gospel is multiplied in the hearts of the willing receiver. You and I are called to be faithful. Keep finding the willing. Keep going to the one whose antennas up. Go, go to the one who has been pricked in their conscience. I need a savior. I know that I'm guilty before a holy God. And you're telling me the answer or the way to that forgiveness is through his son who came and died for me. How do I know more? How do I receive him? How do I grow in my understanding of him? We find those willing receivers and then we pour our time into that. That's how we hold higher the word of God in our lives. Secondly, we live in anticipation of the miraculous. There's something crazy going on here. Did you catch the whole handkerchief thing? The sweat rag thing that Nancy read about where Paul's um, handkerchief was just getting distributed. You know, he was working, making tents and then casting these. He wasn't saying, oh, this is going to sell on eBay. He was just getting rid of it. And somebody else came by and said, this belongs to the mighty Paul. We saw what he's doing. So they started passing it around. And the scripture says, weirdly enough, lo and behold, it worked. People were starting to get healed and the evil spirits are coming out of them. All this stuff was happening. Luke records this in, in a word that we get extraordinary. Some of your Bible translations may call it unusual. That's in fact what a miracle is. We sometimes try to normalize miracles. But it's unusual. It's extraordinary. And, and God was the one doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. That's how Luke records it very carefully, very precisely. Paul wasn't some miracle guru in the sense that he's just like, oh, this thing's going to work here. Go pass this around to your friends and tell me what happens. It's almost like we get from the text. Paul didn't even know that that was happening. Paul's just a willing vessel, an apostle of Jesus Christ, so uniquely gifted, and, and these miracles confirming, hey, this guy's message is legit, pay attention. That's why we needed it, because later he would write for us most of the New Testament. We'd come back and say, like, this is the real guy. He had power and miracles working through him. It all authenticates that message. But it's still unusual, and it should be unusual. Uh, Grudem defines a miracle as a less common kind of God's activity, in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Not, not to the vessel, not to Paul per se, but to the glory of God. Now, I want to be careful and say that we've been going through the book of Acts, a book, a book loaded with miracles and incredible happenings and all kinds of freaky events and exciting events and things. And it seems like all the time I'm pumping the brakes and saying, yes, he did a great thing, but don't expect that today. And it seems almost like throwing a wet blanket on a fire, even though many would read the book of Acts and say, Lord, do this again. And they want to enter into every experience and have it recreated. So I caution even the listening of my own messaging sometimes to understand that that we are practicing what we believe to be good theology, that we're looking for what does the Bible say? It's not enough for us just to say, well, it happened in the Bible, so it must be able to happen now. That's not enough for us to say we look for the pattern of it. We look for the purpose of it. But the more we do that, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that God is still a miraculous God. That he still does mind-blowing, unusual things. 
In our good theology, we fight to remind um, all of us that this doesn't seem to be the type of thing that everybody today can just start going, well, if I believe enough, I can start calling fire out of heaven and I can make this thing and I can cast this out and I can do all that sort of stuff. There's an obsession with that from the scriptures for sure in our modern day church. But the reality seems to be that the pattern is that this was incredibly concentrated for a period of time to authenticate the message and the arrival of the gospel. But but to have good theology on this and to be biblically rigorous about it doesn't mean that we lose our inspiration or our desire to see God do the things that we can't quite explain. The caution in this is that we don't own it, that we don't manipulate it, that we don't demand it from God or claim to others that we have full control of it in a way that helps us, makes us lose our humility about the fact that it's always God's hand. It's always his work. And if he wants to use something that you wiped your forehead with and chucked it off to the side, he can because he's God. You can't because you're not. That's our warning to those that would read the book of Acts differently. It's our reminder that, yes, we receive, this is a way we could say it, we receive what comes from God's hand, and yet we pursue the pattern of his word. I I want the Lord to do incredibly miraculous things in your life and in mine. If I were to slow down and look at every face in this room, I bet I could pinpoint a bunch of different things that have happened miraculously from the, the testimonies of your own life. God will continue to do that. He will continue to reach the person that you've given up on. He'll continue to take from you the desire, the thing that you just thought I'm enslaved to for the rest of my life. He will do the things that you never thought would happen because it's by his hand and not, and not yours. But the problem is, is we can't own that. I can't demand that. I can't ex- uh, uh, proclaim to have some unique gift that nobody else in the room has or anything without violating what seems to be the pattern of Scripture. So we hold these things humbly, but expectantly, if that makes sense. I like what they were doing, though, is they were crediting God's power. Luke was saying this was God, the one doing this. And miracles, the things that God is really doing, always result. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this because I have not recorded every single miracle in history. But I'm going to say this in faith that miracles that are that are the result of God always, always result in life transformation not just for you and i to participate in some healing service and then we get our leg feels better and then we go off doing whatever we were going to do but that the lord would send a miracle to say now things are different your heart is healed not just your ailment and so that these things come in a way that produces a life transformation and i would dare say even one that is recognizable not just one you feel inside let me give an example in 1904 and 05, there was the Welch revivals happening in Wales, um, really on the on the heels or by the catalyst of a man named Evan Roberts, who was humbling himself to surrender to ministry and to be a preacher. He had other educational and career um, opportunities, but he's like, I think the Lord's calling me to preach. And then his message that he was calling his his countrymen or his fellow attendees to hear was very straightforward. It was like three or four points of like things like we've got to confess our sins publicly. And you see the message. You're like, that's a really straightforward message. And you always go, why did a revival that would eventually reach over a hundred thousand converts start from such humble beginnings from such simple statements? And we don't know the reasons for all these things. 10 years after that, they would go back and quiz like, hey, or or evaluate where are people at? And they would see 80% of those people were still in church. 80% of the 100,000. There was a transformation that took place. Of course, because of as a result of the revival, addictions, primarily drinking, had come way down. All various forms of crime and associated crime was way down to the extent that the police became more like crowd control for churches. People were getting out of the bars and the alleyways and all that, and they were filling up the churches. So the church was like, um, well, we don't want you to be unemployed. You could at least be crowd control for us, make sure people are getting in and out okay. That's real transformation. But what they didn't expect was that coal, C-O-A-L, went down. You know, like the industry started going down. They depended on that. How in the world is that the result of 
a, uh, a revival. Well, they started looking into it. Why is coal down? All these other great things, but we didn't really want it to hit our industry. Well, one way that they would go about, the major way they'd go about producing coal and, and getting it out of the, the mines and everything was on the backs of donkeys or on the pole of donkeys. And so how they motivated the donkeys to get going was like dog training and everything. You teach them a language. You say certain things. They recognize it. Well, all the things that they had taught those donkeys, being a bunch of coal miners who didn't know anything about God, was all kind a naughty language. That's what would motivate the donkeys to take the coal out. So they would bark all kinds of swear words at them and all this sort of stuff. Well, now you've got all these converted coal workers who now know that my heart, my life, my flesh belongs to the living God. I can't just do what I want anymore and just live freely and not have any consequence. They were convicted in their hearts about the language they were using. They stopped swearing at the donkeys and the donkeys weren't as motivated to carry the coal out. They didn't recognize the language. It's crazy, isn't it? That's practical transformation. That's when you know a revival has taken root. Things change. Noticeable difference. Thirdly, we need to never forget that life is a spiritual battle. We saw this in the text in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, this was common in the Jewish field, there was lots that could claim to be exorcist. If they knew the names of the various spirits moving about, they had, they had greater credibility. If they could conduct any, um, or gather for themselves any more tools for their tool pouch, then they were even better. It was industry. It was business. Exorcism was business at the time. And so some of them undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. You pick up how weird that is a borrowed authority, but the evil spirits answered them. Well, it's not really how it works in our realm. We know Jesus. I've actually included in your notes as you uh, received in the very bottom in the application stuff, there's a section called adoration and it's a, it's a worship sort of focus for the week. I included three or four passages that show when Jesus showed up on the scene and there were demons present, how it wasn't like he had to conjure anything. He didn't have to work too hard. He basically stepped foot on the shore and they're like, uh, why are you here? Are you going to send us out? Hey, if you're going to send us out, send us over there instead, okay? There was no arguing. There's no fighting. He just had the authority. He showed up, and there was complete command over the demonic world. So they're saying, this is not how it works. We know Jesus, and you're no Jesus. Uh, Paul, we recognize. This guy is like the whole handkerchief thing is really happening. We get it. But you, <laughs> you think you can just chase us away by borrowing something Paul said? It's not how it works, buddy. You see, Ephesus had become a cesspool of the occult they had, as we saw last week. One of the seven wonders of the world was Temple of Diana. And there was all kinds of occultic worship. There was prostitution worship. There's all kinds of things in the, in the pursuit of fertility, they would call it. All kinds of excuses to be wrapped up in idolatry. And so that would, of course, permeate into superstition. You know how it breeds one thing after the next. And the whole culture became infected. It would be like us saying, man, everybody's waking up. Remember when they used to have a newspaper? Kids, news used to come on a, a form of paper or black print and everything. But uh, but always a part of that was like, what was it like the we call it zodiac signs or something? People would go and look like, what's my what's my message for today? It would be like if everybody in culture was just couldn't wait to get the paper. And that's the first thing that they looked for was their Zodiac sign or something. That's what what is happening all around the gospel in Ephesus. So God was going to prove where real power comes from. Tell me if your Zodiac sign in the printed paper can heal your aunt with the handkerchief. Go ahead and try to do that. That's what basically the taunt is coming from the Lord in this unique and unusual miracle. Paul would then remind the Ephesians later on as he writes to them, tell me they're not playing out this whole scenario in their mind when they read Ephesians 6, when Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. They're going, no kidding. We saw that. That UFC battle go down between those posers and those real demons. And they left naked and abused and embarrassed. 
but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, stop playing around with them is what Paul is saying. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. There's an inference there that we won't. If we don't have the armor of God, we can't take them on. And having done all to stand firm. In my daily drive into the church, my daughter and I have been listening to an old C.S. Lewis classic about a hundred years old now called the screw tape letters. And it's been several years since I've listened to it. And the language is, is, high and lofty and you have to really pay attention and figure out what's being said. But the, it's a brilliant book. It's not very long, but, um, uncle Screwtape is a, uh, demon who is writing to his nephew Wormwood and this book, even though it's all penned by CS Lewis and his own brilliant mind, it's made to look like, uh, he's intercepted these letters from an uncle demon to his nephew to train him on better, how better to throw off the enemy's plans, who of course is God and to better employ the father's, uh, plans, which is Satan's. And we are considered patients. So he says, I see your patient is struggling with. That's good. Let's keep pressing in. And so you see in those letters, all of the imagined, but very believable strategy that the forces of this dark world would use to throw us all off, uh, following the, the, the cause of Christ or to continue to deceive the world, to not hear the voice of God. We have to recognize that this world is ever moving out of our sight. We don't encounter it all the time, but he's constantly strategizing through the legions of of, uh, faithful to his cause to tempt us, to thwart us, to trip us up. And in the midst of this, one of the big takeaways is that Satan's greatest desire would be for us to not even believe he's real. To rather than get caught up in extremes and all that, it's so much better for us to be lulled into somewhere into the lazy middle. Yeah, maybe I've heard something about devils and demons and stuff, or maybe God and angels and all that sort of stuff, but I'm, stop me if you've heard this, I'm scientific. That stuff doesn't exist. It would be far better for the enemy's strategy for us to kind of chuckle at these things. You know, all the occultist people and the people with the pentagrams and the animals and all that sort of stuff that gets all of our attention. Those people are wicked. Satan's strongest action is in the lethargic. His greatest mission is amongst those who don't believe he exists. Instead, we get from their own mouth. We know who Jesus is. We know who Paul is. Why would they know that? Because he's attacking their territory. Paul is actively attacking hell. He keeps showing up in these strongholds and he whips everything up because they'd had it nice and manageable. And all of a sudden this peddling this gospel of Jesus Christ and the power, the ultimate power that he has over the forces of darkness stirs all of that up again. And they don't like it at all. Paul even said in second Corinthians 10, we though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. I wonder if you'd be able to identify the strongholds that are in your life right now. If you know, it's like, I know it's the thing that I never seem to be able to beat. It may not be the thing, but maybe it's the thought process, or maybe it's the the attitude I have towards my circumstances, or whatever the case may be. I recognize that it's a stronghold, and I'm giving the enemy so much ammunition that he can just keep using against me. I feel like I'm before you as one who has given the enemy so much material in my heart and my life over the years that it's a very uh, low energy effort on his part probably to just get me thinking in that different direction or send me in that other course. And so the spirit has to be prevalent in such strong and, and, and powerful ways. Paul is saying the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy those strongholds. And maybe you've given up. Maybe you've said, no, it's been 20 years, been 40 years, whatever the case may be. Have you stopped believing in miracles? You see how it all ties together? He said, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion in verse five, raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
And disciples of Jesus leave their footprints at the gates of hell. We, we pull back that territory that the enemy has started claiming as his own. It starts with things like putting together 26 baskets to bless somebody with meals, but it all then turns into, let me, let me talk to you about the hope that lives inside. It may start with some other effort that we think is probably simple or simplistic or benign, but we are constantly encroaching on the enemy's territory and they're getting nervous. I'm like, what are you doing here? They belong to me. It's ironic, isn't it, that Jesus' name had more respect in hell than it did in the synagogues? The demons are like, no, we know who Jesus is, and if he were here right now, you'd have no problem getting compliance from us. The synagogues kicked him out. They said, well, we don't want to hear about all this. It's phony Messiah. It's weird. Verse 4, we are to live a disciplined life of radical repentance. In verse 16, it says the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Interesting. They went in for an exorcism and instead it kind of happened in reverse. Not only are we not casting it out of them, we're casting it onto ourselves basically. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or magnified or increased. This fear fell on all of them. And the name of Jesus was extolled. You see, this story did not come after handkerchiefs were distributed. That's what's weird about this. We look at the handkerchief thing and we'd be like, that would freak people out. That would cause people to say, there must be something to this Jesus thing. Because all I did was touch this little sweat rag and nice sniffles are gone. Jesus must be real. But don't we see enough of that that doesn't quite move the needle? It doesn't really get people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It becomes a thing that they're kind of enamored by or they're impressed by or they think you're an awfully nice person or something like that. But it doesn't quite land the plane to a heart transformation. Now, all of a sudden, we've got an embarrassing, scary situation. Really, it's God's judgment in the form of allowing these these uh, false exorcists to fall flat on their face that God would send judgment in response saying, you can't toss around my name. You can't abuse it like that. You certainly can't borrow my power. And it was the, the judgment of that, that sobered the people up and said, Hey, wait a second. We're following empty things. We're following powerless things. Again, it comes in the hands of these peddlers in society. They collect a few coins for exercising your demons. And then all of a sudden God says, I've had enough of this. Paul is the one presenting the, the only direction towards hope in life. And I'm going to put a stop to this. So the demons were not called off even by transfer or any of that sort of stuff. God said, we'll just see what happens here. And sure enough, they react and they attack. They humiliate and reduce this phony power that is enough to cause this reaction of renunciation that, that people would actually be like, um, okay, not only did I not see that coming, uh, there's probably a lot of stuff in my closet and on my bookshelves that I don't really want to hang on to anymore because it's freaking me out to even have it in my midst. Do you see how that turned from it's a sobering, this is what real power looks like. Then everything I've been doing, my little Ouija boards and all that. So I've been playing around with this. Woo, it shook a chandelier. Woo. The, the one that shook the chandeliers, it runs when Jesus shows up, hides and is chased away. So verse 18 says, also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to roughly about a million bucks in today's numbers. Yeah, this isn't $50,000 like an annual salary. This is 50,000 pieces of silver. This is an entire industry being dragged out to a bonfire, an entire stronghold of a community that says, look, this is where, you know, Think about the things that we would drag as a society out to the center of town to have it burned right now. And it wouldn't just be worth a million bucks, would it? 
This is the signs of revival. They were, they were devaluing all of the distractions and the strongholds, the temptations, what we would see as entrapments, but we call them entertainments. Those things had locked them in so that they were lifeless and couldn't be released to it. They couldn't be freed from under its burden. So instead, they were like, well, let's just burn this stuff and get rid of it. I, I was a part of something like this in my childhood. We, I've showed, told you the story several times, but um, we all as a family were coming to Christ around the same time. And I was just a kid, but um, I, I, I still do believe that the message got through. And somehow in my own little pea brain mind, I got it to some extent. And the Lord changed my heart when I was probably about nine years old and stuff. And, and it did create some passion and fire and everything. But, but what it meant was aunts and uncles and my parents and all that sort of stuff. We kind of probably as we were studying the Bible together, we were doing that as a family, probably came across this passage. I don't remember what the impetus was for it. But I do remember we were outside and had the big fire going and we we're taking all of our albums. Again, kids. So newspapers were on pieces of paper. Uh, music used to be on what you guys now call vinyls. That's all we had. Um, and, and so I would drag my Kiss albums. Oh, man. I had every one of the solo records. I had all the dolls. I had all the sort of, you know, Kiss was the thing. I had a birthday cake at the, at the age of you're not yeah, anyway so i was that young and it was just like it was all about kiss you know and following that band and so throwing them in the fire i wasn't the only one the adults were doing it we had all kinds of stuff going in there and everything and it was it was a movement it was a thing that was definitely more prominent in that time probably some of you remember some of these things happening it was a it was an outward demonstration of detaching from the things that we saw to be demonic satanic uh, any of that sort of stuff and there's a part of me that looks back to that with some fondness, even though I don't feel the compulsion to be that kind of legalistic in my approach now. But there's a part of me that looks back with some fondness and say, at least things meant something then. At least I was awakened to the fact of like, this doesn't belong in my life. And I was convicted enough by it that I did something about it. I wouldn't say that I was all in because, again, these are my Kiss albums and these are the things I really love. And I was like, I'm doing this kind of in faith. I hope this doesn't, you know, but the reality is I didn't miss it. And they were all sacrificing something and things. We moved on. But it's always better or it lasts more when coming from the spirit as he's revealing his power and his greatness rather than I'm a part of an emotional movement or something like that. I don't know what I was doing at the age of nine. Maybe it was sincere. Maybe it was swept up. I don't really know. I think it was sincere for my parents and my aunt and uncle and all the adults that could see the bigger picture. I think they were recognizing, look, we've had decades of living for this kind of stuff. We're time for us to move on. And they've remained faithful in the Lord. So I think for them, it meant something. But rather than us put the pressure on ourselves, wow, I got to participate with this thing because everybody's doing it and get swept up in emotionalism. When the spirit holds high his power, his glory, and we see it and encounter it, it creates a reaction from us. And we're like, I don't, I don't have any more interest or value in this garbage. It's reduced. It's, it's paled in comparison. It's no more compulsion to me. What we're seeing in all of this play out is what took place as Jesus hung on the cross for us, that he battled hell. That he, he, he fought off all of the demons and all the temptation from the hand of Satan himself to win the victory for our soul. He engaged in that very real world so that you and I could wake up every Monday, go to work, pay our bills, have our family, that sort of thing, and not be completely wrecked by the forces of darkness. He did that so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be shown that the life of the flesh, that is the life of the sin that lives within me, it does not need to have the same power and sway on me, that, that he has conquered that in victory. And the only power it still has in my life is that which I allow for it to have. He did that to free us. The world that we live in is spiritual, and the warfare in which we engage needs to be constant. We don't neglect the engagement of the battle. We do so by freeing ourselves from worldly entanglements that come as a result of seeing the glory of God lifted high. Now, let me say this. 
as, as, as cautiously as I can, the only way to replace your affections is not through starvation, but elevation. What I mean by that is we have a tendency to think I cannot do this, should not do this thing anymore. So I pull back and I retreat from it, which is step one, which is good and healthy. But then we create this vacuum because we haven't replaced it. We haven't done so chasing something bigger or better and even more available to us, i.e. the glory of God. Elevation, which is seeing him greater than we've allowed ourselves to see him, encountering him more, that is a a lifting up of his glory. So it causes me to desire to wean myself off of all the other things that hold me back. But our typical strategies for beating the, maybe the addictions or beating the hangups of the things that we have in our life is just to retreat, run away, and then hope. And then be like, ah, I think I can make it. Muscle it through only to fail because that that vacuum has not been satisfied. We fill up on God's value. We see his great name and power. We're in awe of it. We encounter his miracles, not the ones we're demanding of God, but the ones he's willingly and readily doing. And we crave less the emptiness of the world or this flesh that we live in. So I guess the obvious question would be, what would be in your burn pile? As you have the opportunity to lay these things at the feet of a gracious and loving and patient and understanding Savior, what would be the things you'd be like, yeah, this has held on long enough. I don't need this anymore. I'm exchanging it for the greater glory of God and all that he wants to do in my life. He is faithful. He get, he take you where you're at. And the fact that you might, like me as a nine-year-old, taking my Kiss album, being like, yeah, no, burn it. No, I go ahead, go ahead. Having a hard time letting it, that's who we are. That's our flesh. It wants to hang on to. It doesn't want to release freely or willingly. That has to be a move of the Spirit. And he understands when we're not quite there. But he'll lead us into that because he knows it's better for us. It's freer for us. Lay these things at the Lord's feet. He is so good and receiving. And he'll kind of chuck it without a second thought because he paid for it. It's over. And you move on together. Would you please stand? Father, forgive us of the times that we doubt your kindness. Or we doubt the gentleness of your hand or the desire of your heart and and will, Lord, to take the things that hold us back, that rob us of life. And you have such better things for us, Lord, but we so often don't stay around you long enough to discover what those are. We don't always pursue. We play hard to get. Easy to please temporarily. So, Lord, I pray that you would continue to show us who you are. Help us to encounter you in ways that cause us to just instinctively naturally second second nature just drop whatever holds us back we know that's who you are and how you've revealed yourself and it's revealed in the person of jesus christ so help us to know him more the way the truth and the life help us to follow not merely as an imitation or a borrowed power but help us encounter his moving into our souls and taking over Lord, we yield ourselves to your spirit. Lift up our voices, Lord, welcoming you in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.